my advice is to be resourceful and keep moving forward. It's not always going to go as you plan, so you have to be able to adjust your course as life and business happens. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we've built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff, what's this today? Justin Grimes. How you doing, Justin? Good, Joe. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to have you on the show and a little bit about Justin. He is a real estate investor and it turned into his passion in 2016. But on his first deal, he lost $20,000. We'll talk about that. However, he's recovered and he is now an active rehabber, mortgage note creator, and passive commercial real estate investor based in Houston, Texas, and he has a website at thecashflowhustle.com. It's also a podcast. You can go check that out. With that being said, Justin, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? 
You bet. As far as real estate goes, I dabbled in it a little bit by accident, perhaps in 2007 or so. I bought a condo, kind of a bachelor pad and kept that with the intent of just living life there and hanging out, had a nice view. But as life goes, I met my wife and things changed. So we wanted to buy a house. So not knowing what else to do, I just decided to keep that thing and rent it out. And that went on for about four or five years. It was pretty simple, but it certainly wasn't spitting off a lot of cash flow. And when something would break, I'd go into pocket or it never really made a whole lot of business sense. The cash flow would get wiped out every capital expenditure that you'd have. So in 2016, unfortunately, my family lost my father in an auto accident. And from that, a lot of things changed. So ultimately, what I was faced with was trying to figure out how to help my mom create passive income in her retirement year. She's 63 now. So what I knew to do at the time was stocks and bonds. I got a buddy, he does stocks and bonds. So let's put it into the bank. But as those things do what they did, the market's been hot certainly for a while. But what we'd find ourselves doing was worrying about the stability of that and waking up one morning and all that going down significantly without any of our control. So what I started doing was looking for investment opportunities, predominantly in the real estate space. And she's in a position where she could invest passively as an accredited investor. And apartment buildings was the first thing we looked at. So we started around in that in late 16, early 17. And then from there, we've done some self-storage We've done some mobile home parks all passively. And then I figured, heck, while I'm at it, why not try my hand at some other real estate things to create some income? So thus, I took a swing at a flip that we, as you mentioned, we'll talk about. And I've since pivoted and I do that a little bit differently now. So, <laughs> The fix and flip that you did, was that the only fix and flip? And then you got burned and then took a different direction? It was, yeah. So I took a few months, you know, I did some classes and a lot of reading and podcasts and I had a fire under me. So I'm ready to do my first deal and jumped in head first, I guess, not feet first or with a cushion or anything. I just jumped on in and man, looking back on it, there's so many things that I do differently now and, and some things that uh, tough lessons learned, but lessons learned nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And we won't harp on it by any means, but it's clearly going to be valuable for the listeners to hear about what you messed up on so that you help other people not mess up on it. Sure. The way we buy deals right now is with some fairly strict criteria. Most, I guess, notably what we're looking to purchase our properties at is purchase plus rehab at 70% of the ARV. And those are certainly more difficult to find. And that's not something I've come up with. That's fairly standard out there, right? But I didn't do that on my first deal. I bought the thing for about 70% of the ARV before I ever put a penny in it. So that put me in a tough position. The total purchase price was right around $220,000. The ARV was around 300 to 310. So it had some room, but when you get into something that size in Houston, that's a pretty decent size house. It came with some land. It came with 1.1 acres of land when I bought it. And as the repairs, as we opened up walls and found this and that, those expenses multiplied a heck of a lot faster than a thousand square foot house or something that is a lot more affordable. It was an older house built in the 50s. So happy to discuss specifics of, I guess, those lessons learned. Yeah. So it sounds like the repair budget 
you came in high, but then the repair budget was nail in the coffin that you went over. That's right. That's where I lost my money. So I'm, I'm happy to say I was able to pay back any lenders that I borrowed money from and came out of pocket. So I didn't make good on my debt. However, it certainly hurt. One of the main things I did not do was just a basic inspection of termites in general. So by the time I went to sell this thing six months in, holding costs with hard money, it was eating me up and I go to sell it. The buyer does an inspection, finds active wood-eating termites. Mm. So I have to tent the house. So I'm sitting pretty thinking, oh man, I'm almost out of this. And then the next week I'm taking a picture of a tent on a house. So that one hurt. Additionally, so that contract ended up falling through. The next buyer comes through. It's kind of a uniquely zoned property. It's commercial and residential. Isn't all of Houston uniquely zoned? Yeah, there. Yeah, the zoning here is absolutely the wild ridiculous. West. Yeah, yeah, it makes zero sense. So anyway, in the back of this property became a disputed five thousand square feet of land, and on one point one acres of land, that's about ten percent of what I was trying to sell. I did not do a survey at purchase, and that cost me dearly. I basically had to drop the price to who I exited out to just to get the deal off and move on. What was being disputed? There was 5,000 square feet of land in the back of the property that had been sold in 2015. I purchased this in 17. Mm -hmm. And the title company that I used to close the purchase did not find the issue. When I went to sell it, that title company did find the issue and we had to make it right for the new buyer. So a lot of talking back and forth with lawyers and things like that. Ultimately, I had to take a bath on it. The lady I bought it from was rather wacky, it seemed, and had some wacky kids. So I had to drop the price $10,000 or so. And we got a young family and $10,000 versus someone crazy knocking on my door because I sued them for 10 grand. Yeah, just wasn't worth it. So I decided to just close the book on that one. The first buyer inspection found active termites. So you had to tent the house and then you did all that and you got another buyer who then the title company during that transaction found the dispute. That's right. So a couple Dang. lessons learned. Yeah, obviously I don't use Emotional that. Emotional roller coaster, right? Yeah, I still have some hair, but I've lost a <laughs> ton of hair in the past 12 to 18 months. <laughs> We've got a two-year-old and a three-month-old too, so they're doing their fair share as well. Yeah. But um yeah, some very simple things. Just getting a termite inspection. Wow. Those termites didn't come just at the end of the project. They were certainly active the whole time and would have helped me on the front end to plan better budget-wise and get some things worked out on the front end on a further discount. And then obviously when the land was such a large portion potentially of the sale of the value of the property, and I didn't do just a very basic survey on that, which would cost me a few hundred dollars. It caused a lot of problems. And ultimately, those were the kinds of things that caused me to just blow through the budget. Well, we'll move on now. Okay. <laughs> what are you focused on now? What we do now, one of the things I didn't really do before I jumped in was build a trusted team, even of advisors or business partners. And I've taken a swipe at a couple of different team members. So first of all, I brought on a business partner. During that time, she was active in real estate, a licensed real estate agent and flipper, Airbnb, kind of things like that. What I was doing, I'm still working a W-2 job and have access to different private investors as well as banking relationships. So I've got access to some capital that 
allowed us to get into these deals with lines of credit and things. And what we do is purchase just simple numbers. We'll purchase a property for $50,000 here that needs a rehab. We'll put 20 into it and we'll own or finance that for $100,000. That's kind of the basic math of it. And ultimately what we do is wrap a mortgage note around ours. So a private investor is in the first lien. My partner and I hold the second in our business and we underfinance that to a buyer and make a spread on the interest monthly kind of cash flow. And ultimately what that does is for me prevents those capital expenditures from wiping out my cash flow year in and year out when the AC needs to be done and stuff. So we go in there, we rehab these, we get them inspected by a licensed state inspector. We offer a good property to the buyer and then we become the bank. And when my AC goes down or I've got some roof repair at my house, I don't call my bank. So that's the position that we try and play in now. You're buying them with investors? We are. So for example, on one of the first deals we did, we raised $70,000 from a private investor. How do you know that person? That is just through real estate networking at events and things like that. My business partner has a fair amount of private investors that'll do these as well as ultimately our target audience for investors is someone like my mom. They've got a self-directed IRA, some money they want to put to work. They don't want to play in the stock market and they want something tangible that this risk is tied to. So those are the types of people we work with as first lien business partners on these investments. So we borrowed $70,000 at 9%. And what we'll do is we'll structure that at five years, interest only and non-recourse. And there's some gurus in Texas that teach this. So this, again, it's not my original ideas and things like that. There's other people that are doing this, just disclaimer there. Anyway, so that comes out to 525 bucks a month that I owe that person Mm -hmm. in the first lane. They have a deed of trust and first lien on that property. Then what we did is that property is worth $100,000 ARV. So I bought it for 50. I put 20 in it. That's where my investor's in. So I'm all in 70, not using my money though. Rents in the area, try and explain kind of how we determine where the market can be for an owner finance buyer. It's basically capped out for us at rent. So we're targeting people who need some help. They've got historical credit issues that they're working on repairing, or they may be heavy commission-based on their income and things like that. So a bank isn't likely to lend to them. So for that, we do charge a higher interest rate. However, ultimately, their alternative is to pay $1,200 in rent in the market or to pay $1,200 towards a mortgage note that is amortized and building equity for their family for the next generation. So what we focus on is pricing these things. So we're buying things that are ARV $150,000 and under because that lets us maintain that cap on the consumer can afford in the area. So we're not afraid to structure longer term debt. A lot of note guys will do shorter 15, 20 year notes. We'll do a 30 year mortgage note and I'll explain the math on that here in a second. So we'll do 10,000 down, 10% down. And that depends on their credit score. The lower the credit score, you're talking down to 550 to 650 is kind of common range of poor credit. The lower that credit score, the higher the down payment will require. Mm -hmm. But we'll structure that. So let's use the example of $10,000 down. So they structure a note for $90,000 at 10.5% interest. Starting out, their interest, the way an amortization schedule works, 
I know we've got some sophisticated investors, best ever listeners, but that thing, it's very heavily favored in the lender side. Traditionally, that's the way the banks have just made their money. And that's one of their secret tools, I'd say, to their success and growth and power. So in this example, interest paid to me is $788 in that month. The principal in the first month is only $36. So as you break it down over the course of five years, they pay $46,000 in interest and $2,800 in principal. Wow. Well, it's also 10.5% interest rate that you said. That's incredibly high. It is a big interest rate. So again, what we draw it back to is they could either pay $1,200 in rent and not have anything to show for it in five years or pay $1,200 in a mortgage payment where they have a chance to build equity and ultimately own an asset. I guess in that example you gave though, how much equity did they build over the first five years? First five years, they still owe $87,000 on a $90,000 note. So so obviously the interest rate is the shiny object in all these scenarios. But for me, I don't pay more in principal than interest until year 17 on my mortgage. That's a lower percent interest rate, but that's just the way the banks have it structured. The way that amortization schedule works is until like year 17, you're paying more interest than principal. So again, at year 10, so five years later, they've got it down. They've paid a total of $90,000 in interest. The balance owed is $82,000. And at this point, my partner and I have cash flowed that amount. So you're talking $36,000 in spread between what I'm borrowing at 9% and what I'm charging the consumer at 10.5%. I will say one thing too, that 10.5% is regulated. So you can charge higher interest rates and some people do. There are plenty of people that do, but what we do is no more than six and a half points above prime. When you do that, then it triggers different types of things that the consumer needs to go through as far as education and things like that. The six and a half is the benchmark. Anything above that triggers a bunch more paperwork and disclosures. That's right. So how I know that is one of the team members that's critical for us is a residential mortgage loan originator. So to maintain compliance, we're not licensed, my partner and I, to handle all that paperwork with their personal information and qualification and things like that. So this loan originator charges a fee and on the front end does all that data gathering and basic collection of information to show that this consumer can, in fact, afford this property based on three years of work history and steady income and running credit checks and things like that. So after that thing is structured, then we plug in a residential mortgage loan servicer. And again, if the buyer falls behind on payments, I can't just call them up like a landlord and say, hey, I need you to collect your money here. There are protections and laws in place for them where that loan servicer needs to step in and follow a sequence of steps. I know you've had some of your previous guests on the show have really walked through and done a nice job on outlining those details. It seems like if you had cheaper private money, then either A, you would have a lower interest rate to the consumer, or B, you keep that same interest rate to the consumer and you'd have a significantly more spread on it. We could. So right now, so we're about, I'd say, 12 months into this, my partner and I, and I think there is probably cheaper private money out there. However, what we know at this point or who we know are 
usually private money lenders that do house flipping and things. So what they're used to is it 12% interest and points on the front end and Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So for them, this isn't even attractive at 8%. Mm -hmm. So they're not our target audience for that. But ultimately, there's a lot of meat on the bone on these things when you're offering that. So our objective is to make a spread on the interest, but not to gouge the consumer. So we're a point and a half above what we're paying right now. So we're not doubling our interest rates to anybody or anything. And again, that's all based off of ultimately what the rent rates in the area will allow the consumer to pay. How'd you learn this? I took a class. So a lot of reading, a lot of podcasts, and then a class from one of the gurus here in Texas. His name is Mitch Steven. Oh yeah. He's got two books. One of them is Thousand Houses. That's right. So he's got a knack for simplifying this and he does it a little different than we do a twist on it. But one of the ways that we're able to do this in Texas, it's, it's a little different, I think, in other states. And if you're interested in getting involved in this, it's worth, as anything else, contacting your lawyer and some real estate professionals because one of the things that makes Texas attractive is it's a non-judicial state. So the foreclosure process in the event that you needed to go through it, it doesn't last half a year. In some states, you have to sue the buyer, wait a year, things like that. So in Texas, our intention is, we haven't had to do this, but our intentions would be to rework the note and make it to where a consumer can stay in. If ultimately it can't work out, then the foreclosure process through the loan service company can wrap up in Texas in 60 days or so. So much different ballgame than 180 and that kind of stuff. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? From my very first deal, I really think it would have been very simple to just throw my towel in and say, oh my gosh, this isn't for me. I love the stories where people just hit it out of the park on the first one and they've replaced their job income with this new real estate business and it just didn't work out like that for me. So my advice is to be resourceful and keep moving forward. It's not always going to go as you plan. So you have to be able to adjust your course as life and business happens. Absolutely. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. I was born ready. All right. Let's do it. First quick word from our best ever partners. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. Need more investors for your fund, sales for your books, or courses? Whether you're seeking investors or content sales, Luo Media Group is a digital marketing expert that can help make your marketing make money. Get a free consult at luo. M-E-D-I-A-G-R-O-U-P dot com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've recently read. It's the, the Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. It's about the power of behavior and mindset, measuring improvement. One of the chapters is called Elephants Don't Bite. So you take one bite at a time and you get through your project, whatever you're working on. And I'll also throw in My Life in a Thousand Houses by Mitch Steven. It's a very entertaining book. If I remember correctly, which has been maybe 10 years since I read it, 
maybe not long, like eight years since I read it. But there's just so many funny stories about his deals, and it's an entertaining read. Recommend that one too. Yeah, he's a character. And, I bet. Yeah, I haven't met him in person, but I've talked to him on the phone a couple times way, way back when I was focused on single family stuff. Best ever deal you've done? What we're focused on right now on the note business is hitting singles. So I tried to hit a home run out of the first dealer. I thought I was going to hit a home run and I tripped running out of the batter's box. So we're focused on hitting singles, those things, cash flow, and nothing crazy. Sorry to disappoint. We do just day in and day out. We've done four deals to this point. We're looking to do four more by the end of the year. And we're focused on that same criteria of buying and being very disciplined in that approach at this point. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction that we have not talked about? I think that first deal had some other things in it. I'd say releasing funds prior to my inspection. Mm. I was traveling for work at the time and asked the buddy to go by and look before we cut a check. And he's an investor as well, but man, he didn't look at it nearly like I would have because when I got back in town from out, there were all kinds of things missing. Just lights not working. And this was right at the end of the project. So this was kind of some final touches and tweaks and just detail things and baseboard caulking and just paint touch up and things that I ended up having to pay somebody to touch up because unfortunately the guy I used, he was nowhere to be found after he got that money. Best ever way you like to give back? My wife and I like to give back to a couple of basketball programs in the area. And I also hop into the high school once a semester and teach financial literacy to the students there through junior achievement, which I know you've been involved with as well. I think it's fascinating that so little is really talked about growing up in school and even in post-education with college and grad school on financial literacy at the very basic elements. You come out of school not knowing how to balance a checkbook or pay taxes. You got to learn it. Yeah. It's eye-opening whenever I teach a junior achievement class, which is usually, oh, like fifth graders, usually who I'm teaching. I teach them about what you just mentioned, balancing bank accounts and teaching them the difference between a credit card and a debit card and having a monthly budget. And I was recently talking to a niece of mine, and she is a senior in high school. And they were going over that. And I was impressed that they were going over it in high school because usually it's not the case. But it's incredible what fifth graders are learning through junior achievement in this program compared to perhaps not a lot of students in general learning about it. And then if they do, then they're learning about it their senior year in high school. It's just a skill that's needed. Yep, absolutely. Best ever way the listeners can get in touch with you. You mentioned earlier, so the website is called thecashflowhustle.com. We've got some content on there and then various investment niches that I focus on and bring people on to interview and learn a little bit more about. And then email is jgrimes at thecashflowhustle.com. Justin, thanks for being on the show, talking about the lessons learned on your first fix and flip, termite inspection, and getting a survey done. What a roller coaster ride. And then what you're doing now with the lease options and the way you structure those deals and how you make money and some of the intricacies about those. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Joe. You'll take care. Need more investors for your fund, sales for your books or courses? 
Whether you're seeking investors or content sales, Luo Media Group is a digital marketing expert that can help make your marketing make money. Get a free consult at L-U-O-M-E-D-I-A-G-R-O-U-P dot com forward slash best ever.